Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 37. That will be the sermon text for today. Exodus 37 and Revelation 8, 1 through 5. That will be the New Testament reading. Exodus 37, Revelation 8, 1 through 5. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he, ma- and he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub, on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height, And he overlaid it with pure gold, and made a molding of gold around it, and he made a rim around it a handbreadth wide, and he made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold, and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table, and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold. That were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense, and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch. And three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers. And a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And he made it seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold. He made it and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold. Its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it, and made two rings of gold on it under its molding, 
on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. Let us now go to Revelation chapter 8 and read verses 1 through 5. Revelation 8, 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. When I, John, saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. You know, a biblicist will never come to a full appreciation of the tabernacle that God commanded Israel to make under the old covenant. You say, well, what is a biblicist? Stated simply, a biblicist is one who says, if you want me to believe this or that thing, You must show me a single verse in the Bible that says it. But the Bible is not meant to be read in this way, brothers and sisters. Truths about God and His dealings with man are spread throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. A careful student of the Bible will gather those truths up and bring them all together to understand what the Bible teaches on a particular subject. And more than this... The Bible tells a story, and like every good story, it contains themes that are developed as the story unfolds. A careful student of the Bible will know the story of the Bible very well. He or she will recognize themes and trace their development until they find their fulfillment in Christ, His finished work, and His eternal reward. We should seek to be biblical, brothers and sisters. And by that I mean we must believe what the Bible teaches, for it is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and clear. And if we wish to be biblical, we must be careful to avoid the error of biblicism, for it will certainly lead us astray. So why have I said that a biblicist will never come to a full appreciation of the tabernacle that God commanded Israel to make under the Old Covenant? The reason is this. The tabernacle, and later the temple of Old Covenant Israel, can only be understood and fully appreciated if they are interpreted within the context of the story of creation, man's fall into sin, redemption in Christ Jesus, and the consummation of all things when Christ returns. This story is developed from Genesis 1 through to the end of Revelation 22. It contains many important themes, and the tabernacle or temple is one of them. To consider the instructions that God gave to Israel concerning the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 31, or the account of their building of it in Exodus 35 40, 
apart from the story of creation, of man's fall into sin and the promise of redemption through a redeemer, will lead us to a very narrow understanding and shallow appreciation of the tabernacle. I do agree that it is good for us to know the facts about the tabernacle. It's good to know about its design and its dimensions, what it was made of, its furnishings, and how it was to be used under the Old Covenant through the ministry of the priests. Those facts are important, but a careful student of the Bible will also come to recognize that those facts all have meaning and significance. They had meaning then. They have meaning even now as we look back upon these things. I've taught you these things before in previous sermons, so I'll be very brief. What was the significance of the tabernacle? What was the significance of the tabernacle? First, we must recognize that the tabernacle of Old Covenant Israel was designed by God to be a little replica of God's creation. The outer courtyard signified the earth in which we dwell. The bronze altar on which animal sacrifices were made was like a mountain in the midst of the earth. Perhaps it was to be a reminder of Sinai. The bronze laver containing water for washing signified the sea. In fact, it is called a sea in 2 Chronicles 4. This outer courtyard was where the common people of Israel were invited to assemble. As they walked past the altar and towards the sea, they would have been reminded of their redemption from Egypt. Remember, they were freed from Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb and through the divided waters of the Red Sea. In this way, their sins were symbolically atoned for and they were cleansed according to the flesh. Can you imagine this? Walking into the courtyard, past the altar where the blood of bulls and goats was shed, and towards the sea, a reminder of their whole experience of redemption from Egyptian bondage through the symbolism of the outer courtyard of the tabernacle. If the outer courtyard signified the earth, that is to say the dry land and the sea, what did the holy place signify except the heavens above, the realm where the sun, moon, and stars reside as divinely appointed rulers to govern times and seasons? How do we know that the holy place signified the heavens above? Well, there are many indicators. The color of the cloth used to cover the tabernacle is one such indicator. The cherubim embroidered into the cloth is another indicator. The angels looked down upon us from above, and that was signified in the holy place of the tabernacle. And do not forget about the lampstand with its seven lights. This lampstand was to be positioned inside the holy place to the south part of the tabernacle. Some believe that the seven lights represent the seven great lights in heaven, visible to the naked eye, the sun, moon, and five wandering stars, which we call planets. I wonder if you could imagine what the holy place would have looked like to the priests as they entered to minister. With the curtains closed, it would have been so very dark in that place. They would have been um, entering into this, this place of, of darkness from the world outside, were it not for the lampstand that was positioned there. And those seven lights on the lampstand must have shined so brightly in the holy place. As the priests left the courtyard and entered the holy place, it would have felt like them, it felt to them like the transition from day to night. Through the symbolism of the courtyard and holy place, their eyes would have been lifted from the earth below to the starry heavens above as they passed from one area of the tabernacle to the next. 
So then if the courtyard signifies, signified the earth and the holy place signified the visible heaven, what did the most holy place signify? It signified the invisible heaven, uh, the heaven of heavens, that is to say, the realm that God created in the beginning that is hidden from us where He manifests His glory before the angels and, now that Christ is risen, the souls of the saints made perfect. That is what the Holy of Holies signified, the heavenly throne room of God. Do you remember how Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, along with the 70 elders, were given a glimpse of that throne room up on the mountain as God entered into a covenant with them? Heaven was opened up to them and they saw through the floor of it, if you will. Exodus 24.10 tells us that they went up on the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. There was under His feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. The Holy of Holies, this most protected and inner room of the tabernacle, signified that realm, which is typically invisible to us. It represented the very throne room of God. In fact... Pay careful attention here, brothers and sisters. The Ark of the Covenant that was situated inside the most holy place is referred to in Scripture as the footstool of God's heavenly throne. You may see this in 1 Chronicles 28.2, Psalm 99.5, Psalm 132.7-8, Isaiah 66.1, Lamentations 2.1. I want you to listen to Psalm 132.7-8. Speaking of the temple, speaking of the temple of God, the psalmist says, Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And so the psalmist, as he went up to the temple, was imploring others to come up with him. Let us go worship the Lord. Let us worship where? At his footstool, and there in that passage you see a parallel statement made, which refers to the Ark of the Might of God. The Ark of the Covenant signified the footstool of God's throne in heaven. The Ark of the Covenant that was inside the Holy of Holies, which contained God's law, written by his finger on tablets of stone, was God's footstool. Where then is God's throne? It is in heaven where He manifests His glory before the angels. As the Lord says in Isaiah 66, 1, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? Well, according to God's command, the tabernacle and later the temple was the place of God's rest. It was the place where He manifest His glory in a special way on earth in the midst of Israel under the Old Covenant, to enter the Holy of Holies, as the priest would do once a year, but not without blood. To enter the Holy of Holies was to enter into the throne room of God to worship before His feet. And what was above the Ark of the Covenant? Nothing at all. For no image of God is to be made. There's the Ark of the Covenant, which is God's footstool. And what was above it? An image of God? By no means. You shall not make any graven images, God's law says. There's nothing above it. But there, the glory of God 
would be manifest in a special way. We'll soon come to that in the book of Exodus. The glory of God Almighty descends upon this tabernacle once it is finished according to God's design. But no image was made of Him. We're told in this passage that there were two angels on the top of this Ark of the Covenant attached to the mercy seat, which we'll come to in a moment. And what do those two angels remind us of except the heavenly throne room of God? where God is worshipped day and night by His angelic beings as they cry out to Him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. So the Holy of Holies was a kind of link between the invisible heavens above and the earth below. It was a link. The God of heaven, whose throne is in heaven, made earth His footstool, and in particular, under the Old Covenant, He made the temple and tabernacle of Israel, his footstool, there in the most holy place. The tabernacle was designed to be a little replica of God's creation. There is no verse, no one verse found in Scripture that says this, but there are many, many things said from Genesis 1 all the way through to the end of Revelation that help us to see that it was so if we would only pay attention to the story of redemption and to the theme of of the temple of God that is developed within. In addition to this, I've taught you that the tabernacle also signified the Garden of Eden in which Adam, uh, which Adam was cast out of because of his disobedience. More specifically, so I am restating some things that I've said before, but maybe with a bit more precision. More specifically, the holy place signified the garden and the holy, most holy place signified Eden, the mountain of the Lord. You see, just as the tabernacle consisted of three parts, so too the earthly realm that God made in the beginning consisted of three parts. Are you with me? In the beginning God made the heavens, plural, and the earth. And here I am talking about the earthly realm where we live. And in the beginning the earthly realm the dry land and the seas and everything within it, consisted of three parts. There was the earth and seas in general, and this corresponded to the courtyard of the tabernacle. And we know that God planted a garden in the midst of the earth. There He placed Adam, the prophet, priest, and king, along with his wife. They were to keep it. They were to worship and serve God there. They were to expand it. And in the midst of the garden there were two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. This was the place where Adam, the federal head of the human race, along with his wife Eve, worshipped and served the Lord. This was where they enjoyed sweet communion with the God of heaven. And I am saying that this corresponded to the holy place of the tabernacle. Only the priests were to enter there, remember, not the common Israelite. There they were to minister on behalf of the people as mediators between God and man. The decor of the holy place echoed the Garden of Eden. The most obvious echo was the lampstand, which was shaped like a tree with fruit on its branches in each stage of development. What do you think this lampstand, shaped like a tree, signified? This was a replica of the tree of life that was in Eden. Eden itself was a mountain, and the Garden of Eden was near its base. This is what Genesis 2.10 describes when it says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. 
I think it is right to consider Eden to be the mountain of the Lord, another theme that runs throughout the pages of the Holy Scripture. Where do rivers flow from, brothers and sisters? They do not flow from low places to high places, but they, pl- they flow from high places down to low places. And so we are told that Eden, in Genesis 2, was at the base of, uh, the Garden of Eden was at the base of what I think we should consider to be the mountain of the Lord, the, the mountain of Eden. I think it is right to consider Eden to be the mountain of the Lord. There the Lord manifest His glory, and from there He came to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. And Adam was invited to ascend the mountain of the Lord. This is what Ezekiel 28 describes. In that text, judgment is pronounced on the king of Tyre. Using the imagery of Eden and of Adam's, or perhaps Satan's, fall into sin. Will you listen carefully to this oracle from the book of Ezekiel? Therefore, says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. Please make the connection, uh, brothers and sisters. This is the language of Eden being used to pronounce judgment upon the king of Tyre. But these stones should sound familiar with you, f- familiar to you. This should remind you of the garb of the priests of Israel and the precious stones that were set on the breastpiece. You may see Exodus twenty-eight seventeen and following to, to, to remember that. So the same stones that were set on the breastpiece of the priests of Israel are said are mentioned here in this Ezekiel passage. We're to make all of these connections. On the day you were created, they were prepared. I'm quoting again in Ezekiel. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So in Eden, there was not only a garden, but a mountain too. And the glory of God was manifest there. There Adam walked, and from there Adam fell, Satan, before him. And I am saying that the most holy place of the tabernacle corresponded to the mountain of God, which was his throne, from which the river of life flowed. It watered the garden, and there it divided into four rivers and spread throughout the whole earth. If you wish to gain a clear picture of this, then read Genesis 2, and afterward go to Revelation 22, where we find this description of the new heavens and new earth. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from, where is it flowing from, brothers and sisters? Flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb throughout the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Why was there a veil separating the holy place from the most holy place in the tabernacle of Israel? Answer, because of the sin of Adam and our sin in him. Sin has separated man from God. And the way into God's presence had not yet been opened up by the Christ, 
during the Old Covenant, the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, the second Adam who was appointed to do this work. And what happened to the veil in the temple when Christ accomplished our redemption? It was torn in two from top to bottom, communicating that the way into the very presence of God has now been opened up through the finished work of Christ the Mediator. I understand that I'm throwing lots of little things at you rapidly here, moving from uh, the book of Genesis, uh, talking about the book of Exodus, even quoting from Ezekiel and Revelation, but I'm hoping that you can connect all of these, these themes in your mind and heart so that you might see the story, so that you might appreciate the symbolism of the tabernacle. I hope that you are able to see this. This little tabernacle that Israel was commanded to make was a miniature model of the cosmos, of heaven, of earth, and of the heaven of heavens. It was also an echo of Eden and of what was lost when Adam broke the covenant that was made by him, made with him by eating the, from the forbidden tree. And it should also remind you of the new heavens and new earth which Christ the second Adam earned through his obedience. The priesthood and the sacrifices that were offered there in the tabernacle prefigured Christ and his work. The very presence of the tabernacle with an old covenant Israel therefore proclaimed good news. That is what I want you to see. The very presence of this little, little tabernacle in the midst of old covenant Israel screamed good news. Though Adam was expelled from the garden temple of Eden... And though he failed to enter God's eternal temple into glory and rest, God did not abandon sinful humanity, but promised to bring His eternal temple, His eternal kingdom, in another way, namely, through the Messiah of Israel, the second and greater Adam. This tabernacle contained these promises and proclaimed them to the people of Israel and indeed to the whole world in a symbolic way. How can this one structure, this relatively simple structure, signify so many things all at once? Well, it can do so because all of these things are intimately related to each other. The original creation, Eden, and the new heavens and earth, which Adam failed to earn, but Christ has earned through his obedient life, sacrificial death, and resurrection, they are all intimately related to each other. And so this one little structure, the tabernacle of Old Covenant Israel, pointed back to Eden, pointed up to heaven where God dwells, His heavenly throne, and forward to the new heavens and new earth that the Messiah would earn. It did this all at once. These are all different aspects of the story of God's creation, of man's fall into sin by the breaking of the covenant and of salvation in Christ and the new heavens and new earth which He has earned. The tabernacle of Israel all at once signified all of these things. Again, it pointed back in time, up into heaven and forward to Christ, His work and His reward from that old covenant vantage point. I think it is truly marvelous to consider, brothers and sisters, and I am saying to you that a biblicistic approach to the Scriptures will not uncover this beauty. For if we read the Scriptures as a story with themes that develop progressively with time, then we will come to appreciate the marvelously good news proclaimed by the tabernacle and its furnishings. Today, we will briefly consider four items that furnish the tabernacle. First, the Ark of the Covenant. Second, the Table of Showbread. Third, the Lampstand. 
And fourth, the altar of incense. We've considered these items in detail before in the instructions that God gave to Moses for the construction of them on the mountain. Today we will consider them more generally. And we will ask the question, how did these things proclaim good news concerning the salvation that God would bring to fallen men and women through the Messiah and the covenant of grace which He mediates? First, let us consider the Ark of the Covenant The ark was a rectangular chest, 45 inches wide by 27 inches deep by 27 inches tall. It was made of acacia wood and it was overlaid inside and out with pure gold. There was a molding around it and on its top was placed a lid made of pure gold, solid gold. This lid was called, notice, the mercy seat. And on the left and right sides of the mercy seat were angels with their wings spread over the mercy seat towards the middle. And here are the things that I want you to know about the Ark of the Covenant. One, know that it was placed inside the most holy place. It was fitting, therefore, that it was made out of the finest of materials. Gold was used because it was precious and also to represent and reflect the radiant glory of God. Two, the Ark is referred to in the Scriptures as God's footstool. I have already cited Psalm 132, 7-8. Listen now to 1 Chronicles 28, 2. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for building, etc. We know that David would not build the temple, for he was a man of war. In other words, He would not build it, for the kingdom was not settled or at rest under his rule. His son Solomon would build it. But the important thing to notice here is that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is in this passage referred to as the footstool of our God. So then, the Ark of the Covenant, which contained God's law, and the Holy of Holies in which it was placed, represented God's throne, the place of His sovereign rule and rest. Brothers and sisters, I am tempted to at this time connect dots for you. Uh, There is clearly a link here between the temple and tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. The concept of kingdom, the Holy of Holies, is God's throne room, temple, kingdom. And then you notice the repeated mention of rest. Do you hear it? Rest. The glory of God would fill the tabernacle only after the tabernacle is built and the people of God are thoroughly redeemed and even subdued. Remember, they were so idolatrous, but now they are entering into the covenant in Exodus. God's glory will fill the tabernacle only after all of these things are completed. So God, having finished His work of redemption with Israel, enters into a state of rest. David was not permitted to build the temple because he was a man of war. The kingdom was not at rest The Davidic kingdom was not at rest. He had trouble with his enemies and there were internal troubles as well. Solomon would build it because in the days of Solomon, the kingdom would be at rest and therefore God would enter into his rest. This should remind you of the story of creation. It should also remind you of the day of Pentecost. Brothers and sisters, where is the temple of God now? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so after the work of redemption is actually accomplished by Christ, after he lives, dies, Raises to the right hand of the Father, and after Christ is seated, not on earth, but on his heavenly throne, 
the Spirit of God is poured out and appears as tongues of fire. The glory of God is poured out upon His tabernacle or temple, namely the church. And so there is a theme. And when will God fill the earth with His glory fully and permanently, except when Christ returns to bring the redemption that He has accomplished to its consummate state, then His glory will fill heaven above and the earth. And so these three things progress together. Temple of God, kingdom of God, rest of God. Do you see it? So we have temple, kingdom, and Sabbath themes running throughout the totality of of Scripture. As I have said already, heaven, the invisible heavens, is said to be God's throne. That is where He manifests His glory before the angels, and the earth is His footstool. What is the significance of the ark being called His footstool then? Well, it was in Old Covenant Israel that God's throne and kingdom were especially manifest. God is Lord Most High. He is sovereign over all. And yet we know that God's eternal kingdom was in a unique way prefigured in Old Covenant Israel. The ark was the earthly footstool of God's heavenly throne. And so it is not surprising that it also contained God's covenant law. A fitting place for it, don't you think? God's covenant law placed within the very footstool of His throne. God rules and reigns over all things. We are not denying this. But His eternal kingdom was prefigured, as I've taught you before, in Old Covenant Israel, especially it was prefigured in the Holy of Holies. There His footstool was placed. Three, I wish to draw special attention to the name of the lid that was placed upon the ark. What was it called, brothers and sisters? It was called the mercy seat. Isn't that marvelous? The angels on the left and right of the mercy seat signified the, heaven, the angels in heaven that surround God's throne and give Him eternal praise. But the place where God's feet rested on earth, spiritually speaking, was called the mercy seat. And this corresponds to what God revealed to Moses concerning Himself. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. And what did Moses do when he heard these words, when he heard this revelation of the divine name Yahweh? What did he do? And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. That's what he did. And that is what Israel did when they came up to the tabernacle and later temple. They went up to God's house. They went up towards God's throne to worship at His feet, to worship at His footstool, you see. And this footstool, the lid of it, was called the mercy seat, a perpetual reminder of the kindness that God had shown to Israel and through them to the world. It's marvelous to consider. In these ways, the Ark of the Covenant proclaimed good news. God had not abandoned humanity in sin. He is still present with us, ruling and reigning. More than this, He is establishing His eternal kingdom, which is His eternal temple. This He did through Israel and through her Messiah. For the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We, we see all of this with great clarity now that the Christ has come. But I am saying to you that these truths were proclaimed beforehand, even through the tabernacle in general and the Ark of the Covenant in particular, these truths were proclaimed in a symbolic way. Let us now consider the table of showbread, which is also called the table for the bread of the presence. 
as described in 37.10 through 16. The design of it was described in 25.23 through 30. Its dimensions were 36 inches wide by 18 inches deep by 27 inches tall. It was made of acacia wood and overlaid with pure gold. And what did it signify? Well, the 12 loaves of bread that were laid upon it daily signified many things. They were a reminder of God's general provision for all creation. They were a reminder of the way in which the Lord had fed Israel in the wilderness with manna from heaven. Certainly the twelve loaves signified the twelve tribes of Israel. And when the priests ate the bread as representatives of the people, it signified God's special care for them and His special communion with them in the covenant He made with them through Moses. And certainly this bread of the presence anticipated the coming of Christ, the true bread who has come down from heaven. So then, the old covenant had a sacramental table of bread set before them. It preached to them. It directed their minds to the past, to God in heaven above and to the future. And we, the new covenant people of God, also have a sacramental table set before us. It preaches to us, doesn't it? Does not this table preach to you? You hear the word of God read and proclaimed verbally. But as we come before the table and eat of the bread and drink of the cup, these common elements, these sacramental elements also preach to us. They direct our minds to the past to remember the work of redemption that has been accomplished. These elements direct our minds heavenward to remember the provider God and Christ who is seated at His right hand. The bread and the wine also remind us of what is to come. Namely, the new heavens and new earth purchased by Christ's obedient life and sacrificial death. These tables, the old one and the new one, they preach. They proclaim good news concerning salvation through faith in Christ and the new covenant He mediates. I hope you are catching this as well. This constant emphasis upon the fact that salvation has been made possible through Christ and the new covenant He mediates. As marvelous as this tabernacle was... And as much of the gospel that was contained in a symbolic way through the tabernacle and its furnishings and the priesthood and sacrifices, all the rest, these things, these earthly things did not save. You understand that? The salvation that came to those who had faith prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ came to them because they believed in Christ who was promised to them, prophesied to them, and prefigured in their midst through these things. It's important to maintain these distinctions. As marvelous as these things were under the Old Covenant, they were means of grace for the people of God. These things themselves did not provide for the forgiveness of sins. Christ did. But He was held out before them through these prophecies, promises, types, and shadows. Let us now go to the lampstand. Instructions were given for the construction of this lampstand in Exodus 25, 30-40. Perhaps you have heard this lampstand called the menorah which is the Hebrew word translated as lampstand. This lampstand was shaped like a tree. It had a trunk and seven branches, one in the middle and three on each side. The light of this lampstand would illuminate the holy place. By this light, the priest would walk and be able to see the tapestry and the bread of the presence. This light was a reminder that in the beginning, God said, let there be light. The lampstand represented the sun, moon, and stars within the tabernacle, which I will argue was designed to remind the worshiper of the created world. This tree was a strange tree in that it had flowers, buds, and fruit all at once. When have you ever seen a tree like this? Usually fruit trees develop in a progressive way. There will be flowers and then buds and then fruit. But this 
tree had all three at once. This is a reminder of God's continual provision through the cycles of the seasons, springtime and harvest. This tree-shaped lampstand also represented the tree of life that was present in the garden from which man was barred when he fell into sin. So what is the good news proclaimed by this lampstand? One, God in His mercy has promised to maintain the natural order of things. This promise was made in the form of a covenant in the days of Noah. The Lord would never again flood the earth, and while the earth remained, seed time and harvest would be maintained. And so this lampstand, signifying the visible heavens above and of God's provision uh, through seed time and harvest, um, was held before the people of God under the old covenant signified by this lampstand. Two, there is in the lampstand a reminder that God has not abandoned His creation, but was still present within to illuminate, to bless, and to save. The lamps symbolize the luminaries in heaven, the sun, moon, and stars, And those luminaries in the sky were designed originally to remind us of God, Christ, and His elect angels. The visible heaven is a picture of the invisible heaven, and this is why they are called by the same name. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I wonder, brothers and sisters, do you think of God, Christ, and the angels when you look up at the sky by day and by night? When you look up at the stars, I mean, I get it, they are stars, I know that. They're created things, visible to our eyes. But do you not think of the heavenly realm that is invisible to us when you see those stars? Does the creation not scream out to you concerning the glory of God? Does the creation not scream out to you concerning the heavenly hosts that surround the throne room of God day and night to give Him praise? Uh, You ought to think of these things. The world was designed in such a way that the physical world would, would scream out to us concerning the existence of the spiritual world that is largely invisible to us. And I'm saying that the, the, the holy place and the, the lampstand itself uh, was to remind the worshiper of the visible heavens, which are to remind us of the invisible heavens. You see, all of these things are connected together. Hmm. In Isaiah 42.6, the Lord is heard speaking to the Messiah, saying, I am the Lord... I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And so I do believe that the light of this lampstand did also point forward to the Christ, who would be given as a covenant. That's interesting language, according to Isaiah 42.6. Be given as a covenant, as a light for the nations. The lampstand in the temple signified all of these things, And in so doing, the lampstand preached. It preached the good news of salvation through Jesus the Christ, the light of the world. Lastly, let us consider the altar of incense. This altar was to be made of acacia wood and overlaid with pure gold. And it was. It was about 18 inches wide and 18 inches deep with a height of 36 inches. It was taller than the other tables. I think that's significant, in fact, You'll see why when you understand what it signifies. A molding of gold was to be placed around its edges. Horns were to be crafted on its four corners. So then it resembled the bronze altar in the courtyard upon which animal sacrifices were made, only smaller. No food or drink was to be offered on this altar. Only a certain kind of incense. This altar was to be placed immediately outside of the Holy of Holies, near the curtain and inside the holy place. Do you understand where it was positioned? 
It was not in the Holy of Holies along with the Ark of the Covenant. It was just outside the veil in the holy place. The priest was to burn this special kind of incense in the morning and evening as he tended to the lamp in the holy place, which was to burn continuously. Animal blood was to be placed on the horns of this altar once per year. So animal blood was to be placed on the Ark of the Covenant and on this altar uh, once per year. What was the significance of this altar? What was the good news that it proclaimed? Well, the incense that was burnt upon this altar signified the prayers of God's people. The altar was placed in the holy place, just outside of the Holy of Holies. The smoke that rose from the altar would pass through the curtain into the most holy place. And this signified the prayers of God's people. We offer them up to God from on earth. And though we do not see God, we have confidence that our prayers come before Him when we offer them up through faith in the Messiah. Now, it is interesting that Hebrews 9.4 speaks of the most holy place as, and I quote, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which is the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Why does Hebrews 9.4 say that the holy of holies had the altar of incense, when in fact it was placed within the holy place where the priest ministered daily. Why does Hebrews 9.4 say this? Did, did the writer to the Hebrews get it wrong as to the positioning of this, uh, this particular piece of furniture? The reason is this. Though the altar of incense was positioned in the holy place so that the priest could minister at it daily, it belonged to the holiest place, to the most holy place, which signified the heavenly throne room of God. That is what is meant by having in Hebrews 9.4. The most holy place did not contain the altar of incense, but only the Ark of the Covenant. But the altar of incense did belong to the most holy place, for what did it signify except the prayers of God's people rising up to God who is enthroned in heaven? Revelation 8, 1 and following is interesting. We read it at the beginning of this sermon. John was shown a vision of heaven. And what did he see there? As heaven was opened up to him, what did he see there? And I quote, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. When John saw the seven angels who stand before God... And seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar. Hmm. That's this altar here. At the altar, with a golden censer, he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Isn't this marvelous to consider? This tabernacle was designed by God. The design of it was shown to Moses on the mountain and then the people finally were obedient to build it according to that design. And you ought to be able to see quite clearly by comparing our text for today with Revelation 8 that 
this thing was a replica of heavenly realities. It was made according to the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain. Indeed, there was an altar placed within the holy place, within the tabernacle of Old Covenant Israel. Incense was burnt upon it, but it was a, it was a mirror of heavenly realities, namely our prayers coming before the very throne of God who is in heaven. Though we see Him not, uh, this tabernacle was a picture for Old Covenant Israel and for us now as we consider these truths to reassure us that through faith in the promised Messiah we are able to come before the very heavenly throne of God. When John was shown a vision of the heavenly throne room of God, he saw this altar there. Although this altar was positioned in the holy place so that the priest could have daily access to it, it belonged to the most holy place, which was a symbol of God's heavenly throne room. This corresponds perfectly to the reality of prayer, brothers and sisters. Prayers are offered up from on earth, but they penetrate into the invisible heavenly realm. And by this altar and the smoke that rose from it, we are sure, reassured that God hears us. That was and is good news, brothers and sisters. Even under the old Mosaic covenant, a way was made to approach God in prayer. The altar of incense preached good news to Israel, but the altar, the incense, and the priests that ministered there also looked forward to a greater priest, a greater mediator, and greater access to the Father through a greater covenant. This is the message of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9.11-14 says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? I'd like to read also Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, which says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is the writer to the Hebrews saying? He's saying that these old covenant things, the tabernacle and all that it contained and all that was done there by the priesthood was a picture of a greater mediator, Christ Jesus the Lord, who would enter in not to an earthly holy place or most holy place, but into heaven itself, And by doing so, He would gain us greater access to the Father so that we could enter in with greater confidence than what was had before. He has done this for His people, brothers and sisters. He has done this for you and I if we have faith in Him. 
God was gracious to provide a way for old, the old covenant people of God to approach Him in worship and in prayer. They were to come trusting in the promises concerning the Messiah and they were to draw near by means of the tabernacle through animal sacrifices and the Aaronic priesthood. Those priests were washed with water and they ministered on behalf of the people as they offered up sacrifices and prayers to God. They entered the holy place daily. The high priest entered the most holy place yearly. And so though it is true that a way was made, the tabernacle did also communicate that the way to God was not yet opened up wide. A way was made for them. God was merciful to them and gracious to them. But there were also elements of this tabernacle that communicated the way has not been opened up wide yet. But now that Christ has come to accomplish our redemption, He has opened the way to God up wide. Christ, our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, has passed not into the holy place nor into the most holy place, but into that place of which the most holy place was a sign, namely heaven itself. He mediates for His people there in the very presence of God, The tabernacle and temple of Old Covenant Israel were great blessings to the people of God, but they did not open the way up to God wide. No, only Christ can do that. And the tabernacle pointed forward to Him through its symbolism. I'd like to move this sermon to a conclusion now by asking this question. Why should Christians who live now under the New Covenant and not under the Old Read and study the Old Testament scriptures. More specifically, why should Christians study the tabernacle? We are not to worship at the tabernacle or temple. These forms of worship have passed away along with the Old Covenant, with the arrival of the New. Why consider these things then? Answer, because Jesus the Messiah came to fulfill these things. If we wish to understand who Jesus is and what He came to do, We must read and study the Old Testament scriptures which which speak of Him and anticipate His arrival. Stated differently, though it is true that the New Testament tells us all about Jesus the Messiah and the work of salvation that He has accomplished, it does not tell us the whole story. In fact, the New Testament assumes that its readers know the first part of the story contained in the Old. Stated in yet another way. If we are to read of Christ and the work He has done in the New Testament only, we would have a very limited understanding of Him. It is the story of the Old Testament, the story of creation, covenant, fall, and redemption that makes Christ and His work comprehensible. To consider Christ from the New Testament only would be like considering a 3D image in 2D only or a color image in black and white only, or a high-definition image in low resolution. When we consider the way in which the Old Testament anticipated the arrival of Christ and the accomplishment of His work through promises, prophecies, types, and shadows, our understanding of Him in the pages of the New Testament is greatly enhanced, brothers and sisters. The New Testament does not tell the whole story over again, but simply brings the story to a conclusion. The New Testament is, in a way, the final chapter in a very long and beautifully complex novel. No one would read the final chapter in a novel and expect to have a full appreciation for the story that is told there, and yet so many approach the Scriptures in this way. I want you to think about how the New Testament speaks of Christ. The New Testament does not say it all for us, but often speaks in code, if you will, And the key to the code is the Old Testament. I want you to think of the very opening verse of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1.1 says. If you know the Old Testament, even just a little bit, 
you will understand that Jesus being the son of David and the son of Abraham is very significant. In just a few words, Matthew signals to us that the precious and very great promises made to these men through the covenants that God transacted with them were fulfilled in this Jesus. In just a few words, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, a whole story is told, assuming that we are familiar with the story of old. When we study the Old Testament in general, and the tabernacle and its priesthood in particular, we are ultimately considering Christ and His finished work. For the good news of Jesus Christ was preached through these means long before He was born. These things proclaimed Him in a sacramental, typological, and prophetic way. And Jesus Christ came in fulfillment to these things to accomplish our redemption and to bring us to the Father now and for eternity. Brothers and sisters, let us come boldly before the throne of grace through the way that Christ has opened up for us through His shed blood, His broken body. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would make us good students of the Bible. Not so that we might fill our heads with knowledge, but so that we might know you, O God, and the Christ whom you have sent. I pray that we would see Christ in the pages of Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New. And that with the passing of time, we would grow and grow in our appreciation for all that he has done for us. It is truly marvelous, God, that you have been so gracious and kind to us. You have shown mercy to fallen sinners. You have made a way for us through Jesus the Messiah. We thank you for him. God, I pray that you would draw us near to Christ, that you would cause us to cling ever more tightly to him all the days of our life until we come to take possession of our eternal reward, which he has earned for us. In his name we pray and all of God's people say.